Well, as the kids uh, continue, continue out, if you would, take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 19. Or if you have a, a phone that you can pull out that has access to God's Word, be sure and pull that, pull that out as well, or a tablet device, or whatever you have to be able to access uh, God's Word this morning. Let's take that out and turn to Acts chapter 19. We're continuing this journey through the book of Acts that will lead us up to the Christmas season. And so as you prepare for next week, I would love for you to read Acts chapter 20 before you come. That way you'll be prepared for how God is directing us week after week. And then you'll realize we start to run out of weeks running up to Christmas, and we're going to start combining some chapters of Acts there toward the end to kind of take us to the end of the book as Paul gets to Rome, and we see the gospel spread from Jerusalem, literally to the ends of the earth, ending up in Rome at the center of the empire. But today we're going to be looking in Acts chapter 19. If you would, and this will give us a chance to stretch our legs and also to stand just in honor of reading God's Word, let's stand together right now as we look at Acts chapter 19. We're going to read quite a few verses together, and they'll be up on the screen as well, or you can follow along with a copy of God's Word you have as well. It says, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And then in verse 13 it says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. God, we thank you for your word. That last verse just reminds us that if anyone accuses the Bible of being boring or out of touch, uh, that, that verse pretty much takes care of it right there. But God, you've given us your word to remind us of your greatness. And we gather here, God, not to check off a box on our spiritual list, We gather here simply because of your greatness. We need that reminder day after day, week after week. And so we sit 
under the teaching of your word, God. I sit under the authority of your word. And Father, we give this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Just as a way to get started this morning, I want to give you something, and this is not on your notes. As you came in, you got a bulletin, hopefully, if we, if we had enough, but you, you got a bulletin. On the back of that bulletin are some notes you can follow along with during the sermon. But if you would like to write something extra down at the top, I want to give you something just to kind of guide you maybe in your own study of God's Word Some of the times during the week we open up the Bible because we want to hear from the Lord, we want to know Scripture, but we think, where do I start? I I want to read the Bible, I just don't know what to do once I open it and start reading it. Let me give you four questions that you can ask yourself as you're reading any passage of God's Word, and this is a good, a good, uh, just pattern for any time you study Scripture. Here's the first question. What does this teach me about God? So sometimes I just write, God, question mark. Every passage teaches us something about God. Scripture begins with the verse, in the beginning, God created. All of Scripture is about God, about his character, who he is, what he does, why it matters. So anytime you read the Bible, you can just ask, what does this teach me about God? The second question you can ask is, what does this teach me about people? God created people in his own image. And scripture is a story of how God's people have attempted to live in his image. Sometimes doing a pretty good job, most of the time stinking up the joint. Just not doing a very good job. But every passage of scripture will teach us something about people. So what does it teach me about God? What does it teach me about people? And then what does it teach me about the relationship between God and people? We were created to worship God, to live for his glory, to follow his will. And so all of scripture teaches us about what that relationship looks like. So you ask, what does this teach me about God? What does it teach me about people? And then what does it teach me about the relationship between God and people? And then the fourth question I ask myself when I study scripture is just, what should I do? Or what, how should I change? In other words, Scripture should drive us to some sort of change or some sort of transformation. Maybe I believe something differently, I do something differently, I have a different attitude. Just we don't want to come to God's Word and say, oh, that was nice, I have some more information, but it doesn't have anything to do with my life. Because if we know God, we know people, we know God in people, that should impact the way that we live. And so I just want to give you those as we as we read God's word together, I hope to use that. If, if you just need some place to start in your personal Bible study, that kind of gives you a pattern and an outline. And if you forget that or you write those down and you lose them, just send me an email, give me a call, and, and I'll give those, give those back to you. But it, but it kind of gives us a direction. One other thing about Acts chapter 19. There's so much information here that obviously we can't cover it all in a Sunday morning. There at the beginning of Acts chapter 19, you have this interesting situation where it says that the people didn't understand about baptism according to the Holy Spirit. And so it says in there that they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When you hear me baptize someone on Sunday morning, I will baptize them and I will say something like, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
if you've grown up, and we all grew up in different religious backgrounds, that's one of the things I love about First Baptist. We have Baptists in our name, but we have people from every stripe of religious background. No religious background, Catholic, Presbyterian, Baptist, just everybody represented here. If you grew up in a Pentecostal background, and I know that covers a lot of, a lot of range, but if you grew up in a church where they seemed a little more excited than maybe we do sometime on Sunday morning, I don't know how else to explain that, but uh, if you grew up in a Pentecostal background, a lot of times Pentecostal preachers and, and theologians will really uh, tie on hard to Acts chapter 19 and say that you should only be baptized in the name of Jesus. And, and there are some big picture reasons for why this is the case. And I'm going to work on a document that I can put online on our website. I didn't get it finished this week, but I'll make sure we get it out there on Facebook and otherwise. If, if you have family members or others who are a part of a Pentecostal background, and they say, why does your pastor baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but we only baptize in the name of the Lord Jesus? There's some real confusion about that. And so we're going to get some more information out to you about why there's that difference and, and why the two groups see that verse very differently. But just just know that will be coming down the road, and, and I'll make sure you're aware of that when, when we get there. So at this point in the book of Acts, we're in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is located in the western part of Turkey. If you look at a modern-day map and you look at the western part of Turkey, we're in this area of Ephesus, and Paul spends a lot of time in Ephesus. Ephesus is one of the major cities of the ancient world. And as we look at this text in Acts chapter 19, we see two things, and these are on your notes, but we see two things about the way that people relate to God. Here's the first thing we see. God will not be manipulated. God will not be manipulated. I want to show you how this shows up in Acts chapter 19. Look in your phone or look back in your Bible in verse 11. So we're going to pick up in verse 11 here of Acts chapter 19. But look back at what it says there. It says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Verse 14, seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and empowered them. And then you have this phrase about how he beat them up so badly that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. The way that Luke has set up this story is he wants us to contrast the story about Paul in verses 11 and 12 with the story about these Jewish exorcists in verses 13 through 16. So what you have is you have this contrast. And if you want to draw kind of a chart on your notes and a left column and a right column, I want to show you some of the ways that this story contrasts. If you go back to Paul's situation there at the very beginning, it says that God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. It's not Paul who is doing the miracles by his own power, but it is God who is working through Paul. When you get to the Jewish exorcist, you find out that they don't even really know the Lord. They, all they want to do is they want to experience Paul's popularity. 
They want to experience Paul's power. And so you have this contrast where God works through Paul to do these miracles. And then over here you have this other group of people. It's not God working through them. They are trying to manipulate God's power. They want to do these amazing things, but they don't truly know the Lord. And the reason we see this come out is it says that for Paul, even his handkerchiefs and his aprons had this power on it so that if people touched them, they were healed. And then we find out with these Jewish exorcists, it says that they were itinerant. They went around from place to place. Here's the contrast that's being set up there. When it mentions Paul's handkerchiefs and aprons, these were his work racks. Does anybody here work in a business where you keep a rag on you? Maybe you work in like construction or you work on automobiles or you do something like that and you keep, uh, you keep a rag on you. Paul was a tent maker. And so, so Paul would keep these handkerchiefs and these aprons to be able to wipe his hands. And so the rags that brought the healing to people were actually his work rags. Now, I appreciate my dad. I have an incredible, incredible father. He has passed down so many good things to us. But one of the things that my brothers and I said, we refused to take that, were his handkerchiefs. I don't know if you're a handkerchief person, okay? But just the idea that you would blow your nose on a piece of fabric, and then you would fold it back up and stick it back into your pocket for future use is just beyond me, okay? That may be a generational thing. That may be a personal preference thing. But my dad wanted us so badly to use handkerchiefs, and we just refused. Like, we drew the line there. We will take your name with pride, but we will not take your handkerchiefs. We refuse to. And so what we have, when you hear handkerchiefs here, this is partly what Paul was blowing his nose on, or, but it was also something he used when he worked. The contrast, the contrast is with the Jewish exorcist. It says they were itinerant. They would go around from place to place, and they would get paid to do these miraculous work. So do you see the contrast? Paul is working for his own money, and God uses his work rags to bring healing. These other people, they are not working. They're going around and they're taking people's money in exchange from that. They're trying to do these miraculous works. Please, if you see someone on TV and they say, buy this from me and you will get this spiritual benefit from it, don't buy that. Don't buy that. that that's Acts 19 all over again. The people whom God works through most often are the people who are making tents. The people who are going to work Monday through Friday, Monday through Saturday, they are working with their own hands, they are seeking to live for the Lord. God will work through those people. The people who are trying to manipulate you for your money so that they can do some spiritual good for you, they are not being used by the Lord. They are seeking their own gain in situations like that. And God will not be manipulated. It says here that these people who are trying to manipulate others for their money, essentially they get beat down when it, when it comes right down to it. And, and look at the contrast here. In verse 12, at the very end of verse 12, it says that their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. And then you go down to verse 16, 
And it says that after these men were given such a beating, they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. So did you see that? In Acts 19, you have two miracles, two exorcisms. In one situation, evil spirits leave a person because Paul is involved. In another situation, these Jewish priests are exorcised from the house. They are forced to leave the house and they are shamed in the process. God will not be manipulated. I love this quote that's on your notes. It's by a guy named Clifton Arnold. Clifton Arnold says that in religion, in religion, one prays and requests. In magic, one commands and expects guaranteed results. Anytime we try to use particular words and say, I'm going to use these words and God is going to automatically give me something in return, we've gone from prayer to trying to be involved in magic, trying to manipulate God, use certain words to get certain things from God. There's one other contrast I want you to see. It's back in verse 15. In verse 15, it says, One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know And Paul, I know about, but who are you? There are two different words that are used in the Greek language, which is the original language from the New Testament. One of the words, when it says, Jesus, I know, it's a word that has to do with the relational knowing, more intimate type knowing. And then when it says, Paul, I know about, that's a different word. It's a word that has to do with just kind of a general familiarity. Some of your translations, as you look at your phone or you look at your Bible, some of your translations may say, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, or Paul, sometimes it uses the same word know two different times, but know that those are different Greek words. The idea is that these evil spirits, they know the power of Jesus, and they know about Paul that God works through Paul, but they look at the Jewish exorcist and they say, we have no idea who you guys are. You, you're not even on our radar, is what it's saying right there. We don't care about you because you know, have no power working through you. Here's an interesting connection. You can write this down. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 24. Jesus is talking to the people in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says to them, listen to these words. He says to them, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Many people will come to Jesus on that day and say, did we not cast out many spirits in your name and in your name perform many miracles? And then Jesus will look at them, and you know what those verses say? He will look at them and he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. I never knew you. It is dangerous. Hear me, hear me clearly on this. It is dangerous to get involved in spiritual activities. It is dangerous to fake spiritual involvement and not truly know the Lord. If you are seeking to experience spiritual power, the benefits of spiritual power without truly knowing God, the day will come when he will say, I never knew you. And you will say, but yeah, didn't we experience some of your power in our lives? Yes, you did, but you did it without seeking to know me. We manipulate God, listen to me, we manipulate God when we seek to experience his power without truly knowing him. 
and without truly caring to know who he is and what he's all about. For parents, for parents, there's nothing more frustrating than feeling like you're trying to be manipulated by your kids. (laughs) To know that your kids are trying to get something from you without just coming to you and asking for that. And as parents, there's almost this uh, twisted fun that comes with catching your kids and their manipulation. You know, we have a very clear rule. If you go to one parent and that parent says no, it's a big no-no to go to the other parent and try to ask for the same thing that you were just told no about. That's called manipulation. And it's especially bad, especially bad if you send your sibling to do your dirty work. That is completely off the radar screen. We, we don't manipulate mom and dad, and we sure don't throw our siblings under the bus trying to get something in return. Here's the problem with manipulating, and this is why it hurts a parent's heart. It hurts a parent's heart because what it says is, you wouldn't really give me good things unless I manipulate you. In other words, I can't just come to you and ask you for something. I have to somehow go around. And when we manipulate God, it shows that we really don't trust him. We really don't think that he is all good and all-knowing and desires the very best in our lives. And so we feel like we have to go around and somehow manipulate him. How do we manipulate God? How do we manipulate God? Oh, there are probably a vast uh, number of examples, but here's one way. When I, was the, when I was in New Orleans, I was serving as the chaplain for the New Orleans Zephyrs AAA baseball team. And every Sunday for the home games, we would have a chapel service before the, before the professional baseball game. And can I just tell you, there were a lot of guys who came to that chapel service because they needed to get a hit that day. <laughs> because if they didn't get a hit that day, they were going back to double A ball or they were going down to single A ball and they really needed to get a hit or they really needed to show some good innings pitching. And so chapel, coming to Christian chapel became like a rabbit's foot. I'll rub this. I'll try out this God thing. If maybe in return from that, I can get something good from God. Did you know that sometimes we show up at church on Sunday morning simply because we need something good from God that week? God, I'll try this church thing. I'll do this, but man, I need you to really pull through for me this week. Or we do it with money. God, I'll give this money, but you better come through on the backside. (laughs) And so we'll give it not because we're doing it in worship to the Lord, but because we want something from him without simply going to him in prayer. Some of the worst offenders of this, and we're careful to look for the log in our own eye before we point out somebody else's problem, but some of the worst offenders are politicians. Politicians who play the God card because they need a certain number of votes. I hope you'll get out and vote on Tuesday. I hope you'll, you'll take advantage of that, that responsibility. But we have to be so careful of the manipulation and the spiritual manipulation that comes on when somebody plays the God card just because they need a certain number of votes. Uh, the, the other way this shows up is in high school, when somebody who is completely disinterested in God all of a sudden is physically attracted to someone else who is kind of interested in the things of the Lord. And all of a sudden, this person who wanted nothing to do with God gets really spiritual all of a sudden. And it turns out that they really do own a Bible. 
And they really do go to church every week, even though they haven't been in years. But they do go to church every week now because somebody is going to church who they want to go to church with. And there are all these different ways in life that we try to manipulate God for our own good. And here's the reality. Here's the whole point of this. We don't need to do that. We don't need to do that. The God who created us, the God who created you, is all good and all-knowing and all-powerful. And when we manipulate him or seek to manipulate him, we show that we don't truly know him, that we don't truly trust him. And my prayer for you is that you will not seek to manipulate God, but you will just trust him. You will say, God, I want to know you. I want to worship you. I want to follow you. And I trust that you will work in my life exactly the way that is best. So how do the people respond to this? We go down to verse 17. When they hear about these guys getting kicked out of the house and they're naked and bleeding and running around, it says, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. Well, no kidding. Um, And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. When some of the people realized that they had been manipulating God, when they had been using magic to get things from God, they said, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to give this up. And they literally brought their magic scrolls and they burned them. Now, these verses have resulted in some very interesting youth group experiences over the years for different people. If you grew up in church and you were a part of a youth group, there's a good chance, especially if you grew up in church in the 70s, 80s, 90s, that there was some time in your youth group that everybody brought their secular CDs or everybody brought all of their their secular band t-shirts and you had a bonfire and you burned all of these things that were bad, that, that were secular. There's a, there's a good heart in that that says, I want to give myself fully to the Lord. But these verses don't require that you burn all of your secular CDs. Uh, you probably want to run that by your parents before you burn all of their money that they've purchased all these CDs and things for you over the years. What these verses are talking about is we get rid, we get rid of every source of spiritual strength other than God. So if you draw spiritual strength from something, if you say, I hold on to this because I think it gives me spiritual strength, plus I've added Jesus to my life, then yes, you do need to get rid of that other thing. You do need to get rid of that thing in your house. And so let me ask you this question. Are there things in your life, are there things in your life other than Jesus Christ that you draw spiritual strength from? The way this works is, I really believe in Jesus. I really love Jesus. I really want to follow Jesus. But just in case Jesus doesn't come through, I'm going to keep this over here. I'm going to hold on to this over here. I don't know what that looks like in your life, but, but it's a dangerous road to, go, to walk down because Jesus plus anything else for salvation is not the gospel. 
Jesus has done for us everything we need for spiritual power and strength. Everything we need for life, he is taking care of. So to add something else to that and say, I need this for spiritual strength, is a, is a dangerous road to begin going down. Now, we've talked about magic. We've talked about demons. We've talked about drawing spiritual strength from things. And you might be tempted to say, you know what, Owen? We live in the U.S. in 2014. We've moved past demons. We've moved past magic. But can I remind you, we represent a very small part of the world's population. And the reason we say we've moved past demons and the reason we say we've moved past magic is because often our eyes are blinded spiritually to spiritual realities. We don't see the spiritual battles that are happening in the world. A couple of months ago, there was a couple... um, the Allens, Richie and Heather Allen, who were with us, they're missionaries in Brazil. And Richie preached for us on a Sunday morning and, and talked about God's work in missions. We got a message from Richie and Heather this week that as they're going into these villages in Brazil, in the northeast part of Brazil, in the jungles of Brazil, right now they're having difficulty in one of the villages because the witch doctor there is threatening to put curses on anyone who turns to Jesus. And so they're going into these villages and they're preaching that Jesus is Lord, that he's the one who brings salvation. And they said that literally the people are putting their hands over their ears because they don't want to hear this message for fear that the witch doctor will put a curse on them. And I know that that can seem so far away, but can we just admit that that is a lot closer to the book of Acts than where we normally live? That that reality, that they are on the front lines confronting evil and darkness with the gospel is a lot closer to the book of Acts than where we normally live. And so we're going to do something. We're going to stop right now in our service, and we're going to pray for Richie and Heather. And we're going to pray for the work of the gospel in Brazil. And we're going to pray for this witch doctor, that their eyes would be open and they would experience the power of God in their life. Would you pray with me just for a moment in that way? God, we need a reminder of the spiritual battles that go on around us. It's easy to think that church and things of God are just kind of add-ons to our life. They're part of our life. But it's so easy to forget the the battles that rage. God, I pray for Richie and Heather and for the believers in Brazil as they're facing the fear of these curses from this witch doctor. Living here on the Gulf Coast where we live, we realize that these things are not far from us. That we live in a culture where, where, where practices of magic and the occult are, are all around us. And so we don't have to go to Brazil to see those realities, but we know that they're facing them right now. And Father, we pray that in the name of Jesus, that they would have victory, that your gospel, the good news about Jesus, would spread into these villages, that this witch doctor even, who is seeking to put these curses on the people, would know that Jesus Christ died to take the ultimate curse. There is no curse placed by anyone in this life, in this world, 
that can overcome what Jesus did on the cross and through the resurrection. And so, God, we pray that the light would shine there and that the light would shine here on the Gulf Coast. And, Father, we know that we have victory through Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, very quickly, let's look at the last verses and then we're going to wrap up for, for this morning. Look down in verse 23. We want to see how this story ends up, that God is not manipulated, but God is also not rivaled. And we're just going to spend a minute on these verses, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Look down at verse 23. It says, about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. The word way is probably going to be capitalized in your Bible. It just means it's the way about Jesus, following Jesus. Verse 24, a silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the whole world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Okay, so the city of Ephesus was known for a lot of different things, but it was mainly known for being the caretaker, so to speak, of this goddess called Artemis. Connor, can you bring up the PowerPoint? We're not going to look at that map, but if you'll go to the second slide here in just a second, I want to show you a picture of the temple of Artemis. I would show you a picture of Artemis herself, but it's kind of X-rated. Let me just say that Artemis was the goddess of fertility, uh, so that you can fill in the blanks at, at that point. But uh, this is a picture, a rendition of what it might have looked like if you went to the Temple of Artemis. It was larger than a football field. So you take a football field and you expand it wide and long, and that's how big the temple was. Go to the next picture really quick, Connor. This is what's left <laughs> of, of the Temple of Artemis. If you go to Ephesus today, this is all, all you're going to see there. Now, the Temple of Artemis is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. One of the seven wonders. Okay, we're going to pause for a second. I want you to think to yourself, can I name any of the other wonders of the ancient world? All right? Okay, so start thinking to yourself. Maybe get help from your neighbor. Okay, show us the list, Connor. Did anybody get any of them right? Hopefully, so along the way. The pyramids at Giza, which amazingly is the oldest wonder of the ancient world, but is also the only one left standing, is, are, the temple, are, the, are the pyramids of, of Giza. You have the Haining Gardens of Babylon, the Temple of Artemis, the Statue of Zeus, 
uh, a large mausoleum that was Halicarnassus, this huge colossus statue at Rhodes, and then you have the famous lighthouse at Alexandria. Most of those were destroyed by, by earthquakes along the way. Some of them were destroyed by invaders or different things. So that's just a little side history lesson for today. You can go home and say that you now know the seven wonders of the, uh, of the ancient world. So go back to the text, Connor, just for a second. So you remember that, that image that was up there of the large temple. What would happen is you had businessmen in the city and they would, make, they would make idols that looked like that temple. And so you would go to their business place and you would buy your little idol and you would go up to the temple and you would present your idol in worship to Artemis. Now, if some guy comes along and says, hey, I hate to tell you, but that little idol is not real. There's no spiritual power there. It's a false God. The one true God has shown himself through Jesus Christ. And people no longer buy those idols. Who's going to get upset? The business people. The people who make the idols. Because now the gospel is rivaling their business. People are turning to the Lord and it's hurting their business. And we even live in a world where that can happen. Where when people start to turn to the Lord and God transforms their life, they're no longer going to spend their money in certain areas because they realize, I don't need those things. They don't hold any spiritual power for me. And so people are going to get frustrated. They're going to get angry. And it ultimately comes down to this question. And we're going to end our time this morning with this question. Who do you worship? I know that's extremely basic on the level of questions. But here's the question. Who do you worship? Who do you give your life to? Who do you draw your spiritual strength from? What is your life all about? One of the ways I like to say this, and I say it more for myself than anything else, but it just helps me remember it. God has no desire to be number one in your life. God has no desire to be number one in your life. He desires to be the only one who drives your life. Because if God is number one in your life, something else will come along and will rival God. And you just have to watch college football for a while to realize it's a scary thing to be ranked. Because if you're ranked, you get beat and bad things happen and you drop down. God does not want to be number one in your life. He wants to be the only one. The one who drives all of your life, who gives you life, who gives you power and strength and direction and everything you need. And so the question of who or what you worship comes down to what is my life based around? Who is my life based around? And it's my prayer that would be based around Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray for us in a second. And we're going to sing a song about living for Jesus, about giving our lives for Jesus if there's something going on in your life where you're trying to manipulate God to get things from him without simply going to him in prayer, if you're trying to rival God, if there are other things in your life that are becoming more important than him, use this chance. Use this chance before you walk out of these doors to repent and say, God, I want to live for you. Show me what that looks like. If you're looking for a church to be a part of and you say, I want to be a, a part of a church that's seeking after the Lord, wanting to know him, through his word. I would love to talk to you about that. Let me pray for us, and we're going to sing together as we wrap up our time.